trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're just, uh, you know, freedom curious, or you want to see if the rumors you've heard about this guy are true, (laughs) thanks for tuning in. This is the place where we gather to revel in wrong think. Not necessarily because I have this rebellious spirit, but because sometimes it's necessary. I was going to give you the whole, when in the course of human events, but I think that one's already been done. But yeah, it's it's a time where uh, sifting truth from error is, uh, is if, you're, if you're serious about, you know, being attached to reality, you've got your work cut out for you. I'm not here to tell you what reality is, but I'm going to try to give you whatever tools I can find that can help you have a better understanding, by which I mean a more complete view of what's going on around us and what you do with that information, that's up to you. Okay, I don't have all the answers. I'm not a smart guy. I'm not good looking. I'm not rich. Well, I don't know where I'm going with this, but bottom line is I'm nobody special, but I cherish truth. I cherish personal liberty. I cherish freedom of conscience and freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of association, private property rights. I love the free market. I think we do our very best. We become our very best in circumstances where we don't have someone dictating to us, well, I know better what you need and what has to be done here and, you know, trying to control it all from the top down. So with that in mind, welcome to the Brian Hyde Show. There's uh, there's a lot to share with you today. I'm going to get this one off my chest early just because, uh, really, there's talk about, well, we're going to have to ban gas stoves, I guess, you know, just you know, for safety. Isn't that the catch-all for every tyrant? Didn't they actually march people off to death camps or to gulags in the name of safety? Yes, uh, we're relocating the Jews, you know, for their own safety. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, sure. Stalin, why'd you put all those people in the gulag? Well, it was, you know, it was for safety reasons. They were engaging in anti-Soviet activities. You know, it's, it's better that we put them there for, for everybody's safety. But seriously, gas stoves. Now, look, I'm going to I'm going to confess something here that I'm not really proud of. But as a kid, I grew up in a home with uh, with an electric stove. I know it's no big deal, but my point is I was terrified of gas stoves and well, gas appliances in general, because I don't know, somewhere I got it in my head that, well, you know, these gas appliances, if there's a gas leak, I, you know, the whole house could explode and. And it wasn't until I was uh, a missionary for my church and um, living in a pretty crappy apartment, you know, up above a garage, and it, it had a gas stove. And, I, man, I remember just, whoa, this is really intimidating. And, you know, you had to, I can't remember if we had to light it or if it had an automatic lighter. I think we actually had to, to strike a match and light the stove. It was, it was that old of a gas stove. But I got over the fear. Eventually, I realized, you know what, this isn't that dangerous. Although, you know, when you catch a whiff of gas, like, oh, did somebody leave a burner on? You know, that is a little bit unnerving. So uh, shift forward a few years, and now I wouldn't settle for anything less. Yes, I've seen induction cooktops. I think they're really cool, but um, there's just something about, I I guess I'm just one of those old-fashioned guys. You want to make me happy? Cast iron on a good gas stove, and I am absolutely in heaven. That would be my preferred way of doing things. So there's a part of me that's just wondering, why on earth would any agency, let alone a federal agency, you don't want to step up and say, well, it looks like we're going to have to ban gas stoves. 
Do you know how many people throughout, uh, and this is just throughout America, have gas stoves in their home? What's what's the what's the thing? We're going to pass legislation or some regulation uh, by this date. Everybody has to get rid of them. And what's the alternative? Now, here's where you know I may have to adjust my tinfoil hat just a little bit, but the cool thing about a gas stove is even if the power is off, you still can cook on your gas stove. Now, you do have to light it manually. Typically, the, the striker won't, uh, won't light it itself. But you can still cook. Even in an emergency situation, as long as the gas lines haven't been broken or something, you know, an earthquake or whatever, you still have that ability to cook. Now, if it's everything's purely electric, purely hooked up to the grid... Now you're under the control of someone or something else. In other words, if uh, just just for instance, if somebody got it in their mind that you know uh, the the peasants are being a bit restless, maybe we need to to humble them for a period of time, shut off their power. Good luck cooking. Good luck staying warm. Good luck washing your clothes. Whatever it is. See, there's a time where I thought, oh, that's outrageous. Nobody would ever do that. But looking at the direction that uh, people within our federal government especially have been going here of late, I'm not convinced that that's not on the table, at least for some of them. So I guess I'm looking at this as, uh, what is this, another provocation? Another thing to demonstrate we have power over you and we will exercise that power. You will submit. Well, I've got some news for them. I will not submit. And, and uh, you know, from my cold, dead hands. No, I, I have, uh, as a prepper, I've always had alternative means of, of cooking. I'm a big fan of stocking up on charcoal, for instance, simply because charcoal briquettes are very stable. It's not like, oh, my gosh, he's storing, you know, 55-gallon drums of gasoline or kerosene or whatever in his house. No, you know, fi- the, the, the nice thing about charcoal is it's very stable. It does take up some space, but you can put away hundreds of pounds of it. And as long as you're cooking with it outside, you have a pretty effective way of of cooking. You know, the key is just don't do it inside. Don't try to use it for heat. So thanks for letting me get that off my chest. It just it just bugs me. It's always there's one thing, then there's another. Now, there's there's almost no limit to where this regulatory state wants to go in order to control our lives. And and when they use the term for safety, well, can I just be frank? That pisses me off. It's like, you're not doing this for my safety. You're doing this to show me that, uh, you know, I am powerless before you. Well, I'm not powerless. And I'm hoping that this is one of the kind of issues where people will say, hey, look, I'm not about to give that up. Might be a good time for the states to start standing up, interposing themselves between, you know, an out of control federal government and their citizens. All right. I'll quit beating the drum there. Let's talk for a minute to, at what's what's at the root of all this this just oppressive top down we know what's best attitude. That's not the government that our founders gave us. In fact, I was reading an article on uh, americanthinker.com yesterday. Uh, this is from Joe Strader. <clears throat> it's titled The Moral Conundrum in the Coming Ideological Battle. And it really made me stop and think because he starts with a quote from John Adams. You've probably heard this one. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Think about what John Adams is saying there. The founders gave us a government that was for a moral people. In other words, a self-governing people. 
people who didn't always need this external threat of authority or or power to to steer them the direction they should go. They could largely do it themselves. They were self-governing. What happens when you have an immoral society? I'm not trying to cast judgment on anybody, but I think most objective, objective, objective observers would be able to assess the situation and say, yeah, we're not really moving in a more moral direction. Now, are we? Joe Strader says the First Amendment guarantees access to religious institutions without government inter- interference, along with the right to, free, to speak freely and seek redress of a grievance. Now, the first guarantee shapes morality. The other two acknowledge that moral people are trustworthy. The Second Amendment is also based on their faith that Americans would be moral rather and lawful. The right to privacy of our papers and homes presumes that the people could be trusted without the government constantly watching and controlling them. A moral people can be trusted in their private affairs. Throughout the Constitution, we find this trust that the people will do the right thing. It's a trust built on knowing that moral people can be counted on to behave morally in their private lives and in administrating the government of the people. And that connection between morality and trust is what makes self-government work. Consent of the governed is a consent born from trust. But he points out, we've changed. Many people have no moral foundation. We're less trustworthy in our personal lives and our ability to self-govern. The government no longer trusts the people. The people no longer trust the government. And this distrust infects our lives more than personally. We are politically, socially, and legally untrustworthy. And he actually goes here. He says the elections are not trusted because the administrators are untrusted. Social media giants use deceptive and false reasoning to block those with whom they disagree. School boards lie to parents saying they're not teaching subjects parents find objectionable while secretly doing so. We have a two-tiered justice system in which the well-connected insiders get preferential treatment. The law is selectively enforced. Now, a few people still value morality and the trust it engenders. However, they see an uphill battle against the distrust that has permeated our society and its institutions. And he says some have suggested that we need to use immoral people's weapons of immorality and deception to beat them. That's the conundrum. Must we become immoral ourselves to defeat the immorality that's destroying us? Do something, even if it's wrong. Doesn't feel right. He says that's because it isn't right. We'll come back to his commentary just the other side of these messages. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com as well as monticellocollege.org. Sorry, momentary lapse of memory there. I've been sharing this article from Joe Strader. This was published on americanthinker.com about the moral conundrum in the the coming ideological battle. And he has a point that's worth considering. And I'm not saying this because we should be self-flagellating and, oh man, I feel so guilty all the time. But our government was intended for a moral people. That's the system of government that the founders gave us. It's limited because the people didn't need government overlooking their shoulder and, you know, looking around and telling them every little thing they should do with its thumb right on their head. No, we could govern ourselves. 
Well, that was then. We've had generations now that have been trained, no, 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 don't trust yourself. You you let someone in authority tell you if it's okay if you do that or tell you when to do this or that. And uh, what's bad is we've let immoral people get above us to where now they have weaponized the government. That's a pretty strong term, but that's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Now that uh, the GOP has taken control of the U.S. House of Representatives, they've actually created a select committee to investigate President Biden's weaponization of the federal government against the American people. Now, some people might just say, well, it's just playing politics. It's all it is, but that's very serious stuff. And I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a misdirected effort. I think it really needs to be called out, investigated, and, and stopped. But here's the conundrum. Do we have to become immoral like the people who are immorally trying to deprive us of our natural rights rather than protect those natural rights, which is the reason this government was called into existence in the first place? Joe Strader says it's tempting to think things might improve by reflecting immoral people's techniques back at them. With a bit of cunning and effort, we could be just as good at the electoral deception they use. We could hire dishonest lawyers to lie for us. We can wrongly eject them from our social circles. Yes, we can adopt their immoral tactics and defeat them, but it will still be wrong. We need moral and effective solutions. Now, believe it or not, I, I know there are people right now rolling their eyes going, oh, come on, man. You got to fight fire with fire. You got to be more vicious than your enemy. Isn't that kind of what Antifa has become? They, they've become the very monster that they claim that they're standing up against. I don't, think that's, I don't think that's an option for people who still believe that there are absolutes of right and wrong. You don't want to become what you're trying to fight. And frankly, you know, I, I don't really think you want to just be known for, this is what I fight, this is what I'm against, this is who I'm against, this is what I don't like. Better to be known for what you stand for. Now, Joe Strader says, look, I'm tempted to just let God sort it out. We should not sink to their level of immorality to defeat the damaging things they've given us. That God will judge is certainly true. However, God may be expecting me to do something in the meantime. Mm, there's the rub, isn't it, right? I mean, I know a lot of people, well, it's all in God's hands. You know, I'm not going to worry about it. But what if, what if he actually expects us to be willing to participate in what needs to be done? In fact, I'm just going to throw this out there just as a you know possibility. What if, in order to be a people who enjoy the blessings of liberty, and I believe it is a blessing. In fact, I think it may be the greatest blessing that God gives us. But we have to be the kind of people who qualify for it, meaning we have to be willing to do the work to be the kind of people who can handle liberty. It's not just a matter of sitting back and passively letting it, you know, just distill on us like morning dew. Joe Strader says, maybe we take over immoral institutions from the inside. However, these institutions are very protective. We might make gains around the edges, but they will never allow a takeover of institutions like academia or the legal system. We might also become dirty through association. Good people often go bad when they work inside immoral institutions. Just as an aside, would, would you not agree that sometimes politicians, the longer they are in office, 
start to appear and sometimes smell like part of the machinery. I think that's the danger. And I say that with the knowledge. There are good people. I think there are people who sincerely go into, you know, political leadership to try to do the right thing. But the system does not reward and it does not allow the right thing to be a priority. That's interesting, isn't it? If you want to be effective, you've got to be willing to compromise your principles at some level. Now, Joe Strader says we could build our own institutions, homeschooling and private education have made inroads, but they're dwarfed by, quote, free government schools. There are a few places where new institutions can be created. Immoral government will prevent them. We could be fatalists and assume an immoral society will eventually destroy itself. We let it crash, then swoop in and pick up the pieces. They die and we win. Okay, I'm going to confess, I probably lean towards that more (laughs) than I should. I find myself saying, you know, it's all going to come tumbling down. And there's a part of me that's like, I wish it would hurry up and do it, because I'm really getting tired of the stench of rot. But listen to Joe Strader's take on it. He says, my take on a successful plan is different. Patience, preparation, and providence. We wait, preparing ourselves for a moment of providence to act. We must, tune, we must stay tuned to our internal voices of reason and be prepared to move. He says the right time and place will come. There will be times to win elections by legal ballot harvesting. We may work on the inside or create brand new successful replacements. The key is to be ready and available. Opportunities will find the prepared. He says our founders, armed with diligence and faith, succeeded in the impossible. At a time when needed, Men were prepared to step up and end slavery, and later the evil of racial discrimination. Prepared and available people of courage stood against despotism in Europe and the Pacific, ending a great evil. But he says it's more than faith. People who are ready and watching will sense when the time is right. And he says, that is my plan. Stay connected to what is right. I will work in my life to make changes as I can. I will listen to that inner voice that says, now, move. It is time. Some will be called to lead. Many more will be called to act. Then we move. And he says, be ready. The time may be close. Now, that may sound a little bit metaphysical to some. But I would suggest if you have if you've ever given serious study or serious contemplation to how exactly did providence play a role in what the founders pulled off in separating themselves from fighting a war of independence against Great Britain, and eventually succeeding in establishing a new nation. You know, it's best to read it in the founders' words themselves. And and the the beautiful thing here is they were not this monolithic religious block that all believed the exact same things. They had disagreements, and they quibbled. Some of them were deists who believed God made the universe and then just basically said, okay, that's done, turned his back and moved on to, you know, bigger and better things. But as you read their writings and as you see how they saw the world, basically, if you can put yourself into their shoes and try to see through their eyes, there was great respect for the divine. And in fact, many of them marveled at the miraculous uh, interventions that they saw on behalf of these colonies who did not stand a chance against the world's greatest military power and yet somehow prevailed. What these guys had was moral clarity. 
What we need, you and I as individuals, is moral clarity. And I think this is what Joe Strader is pointing to. Prepare, stay close to God, listen to that voice of conscience, and be ready to act. Be the kind of person who could be called upon and ready to snap to and step up and be a leader when the moment is right. No, I don't know when that moment's coming. I hope it's close at hand. At the same time, I wish I had a lot more time to prepare. Does that make sense? All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back just in a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Here's my invitation. Please consider signing up for my daily show notes. It's not going to cost you anything. I won't pester you. You know, if you can handle getting an email from me Monday through Friday, when I do the show, I'll send you a copy of the show notes complete with links. And you can check out the various articles if there's one you think, oh, that was kind of interesting. I want to follow up on it. You know, that'll save you the trouble of having to actually go, you know, to my website on your own and search up, you know, whatever one you're looking for. So go to the BrianHydeShow.com. Click on show notes down at the bottom of the page is the subscribe button. Click that and you're good as gold. I'm going to continue on this theme of what can we do to affect change, particularly, you know, in, in the situation of, look, our, our government is, is behaving in ways that are frightening, that are disturbing, that, that uh, well, they frankly make me angry to think that, uh, that it could invert its role and think that it is actually our master as opposed to our servant that's supposed to be protecting our natural rights and keeping us free. Now, if you say, well, why would you be outraged about that? Because I understand what my rights are. Anyone who understands what their rights are should feel a a pretty healthy sense of uh, umbrage at the idea that, oh, yeah, no, these politicians, they, they should be telling us every move we make, every step, how high to jump, how many times, you know, we can move our hands this way. And, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. So if we have some changes to be made, We've got to be a part of it. That doesn't mean give all your time and attention to politics, but in fact, I, to, to prove this out, Annie Holmquist has a marvelous article, and this may seem too simple to be true, but the best way to affect change in the world is you start with yourself. And Annie Holmquist has a marvelous article about how good government starts in our marriages, our minds, and our communities. So if you're concerned about today's government, you have to start changing it right where you are. She says the turn of the calendar is never complete unless it's accompanied by a look back at the highs and lows of the preceding year, a job that various media outlets dutifully perform. Gallup is no exception. The popular polling firm recently released its list of issues that Americans considered the nation's biggest problem in 2022. Now, if you guessed that government earned the top spot, you're absolutely correct. The fact that government heads the list isn't really that much of a surprise. Instead of allowing our Constitution to do its job and extend its freedoms to all citizens, Washington politicians continue to cave to special interests, promote the elites, and in general, overlook the things that are important to average Americans, handily sweeping us out of the equation. She says what's surprising, however, is that the government has earned the top problem spot in seven of the last ten years of Gallup polls. 
and in the years that it didn't receive top billing, it was only a few steps behind in second place. So the question is, if the government is such a problem, and such a widely recognized one at that, then why is it that this problem continues year after year? And why is nothing being done to solve it? Author Wendell Berry wrote in his book, The Art of the Commonplace, if the people do not have the government they want, then they will have the government that they must either change or endure. Annie Holmquist says, unfortunately, in our present situation, it seems that Americans have decided that it's far easier to endure a problematic government than to undergo the work of changing it. And a couple of reasons for this come to mind. For starters, most of us, are too, or many of us rather, are far too comfortable with life as we know it. To confront and attempt to change our problematic government would mean rocking the boat and perhaps even putting ourselves in the crosshairs of politicians, social and mainstream media, and even now, institu- now even institutions like the FBI. So we become armchair umpires, critiquing the government from the comfort of our homes, but never sticking our necks out and risking our names getting in the public eye. Another reason we're unwilling to look in the mirror and confront our own personal problems. That's true, by the way. Moral and character flaws are at the root of many of our national problems, Barry wrote, and one who's willing to undertake the discipline and difficulty of mending his own ways is worth more than a hundred who are insisting merely that the government and the, inst- and the industries mend their ways. Barry wrote that fixing a bad government doesn't just come through political protest and lobbying of government leaders. It comes when we as individuals take the bull by the horns and rebuild locally, doing one small thing at a time to restore lost foundations. Barry says, we are going to have to rebuild the substance and the integrity of private life in this country. We are going to have to gather up the fragments of knowledge and responsibility that we've parceled out to the bureaus and the corporations and the specialists, and we're going to have to put those fragments back together again in our own minds and in our families and households and neighborhoods. We need better government, no doubt about it. But we also need better minds, better friendships, better marriages, better communities. We need persons and households that do not have to wait upon organizations, but can make necessary changes in themselves, on their own. End quote. So Annie Holmquist asks, how do we, the little folks, foster better minds, friendships, marriages, and communities that bring about the changes that we need? Those brave parents who have, spo- who have stood up in school board meetings across the country in the past few years and spoken out about the poor treatment and propaganda that passes for education these days are some who are advocating for better minds. Parents who take their children out of the public school system entirely are doing the same, raising the next generation to think differently and to strive after challenging material in- instead of simply learning to become a cog in the system. Even families who simply have dinner with one another regularly and engage in good conversations will increase the understanding and knowledge of their children. But she says better minds don't just come by fighting for a more well-rounded, high-quality education for our children. We as adults also need to strive for better minds ourselves. Setting aside time to read books, especially older ones, instead of more online headlines and social media feeds is the first step. Interacting with a book's text by writing questions in the margins, underlining important points, and then talking about what you read with others and applying those insights to our world today is another step. By the way, what she's suggesting there is powerful beyond what most people would believe. 
I've done it myself, I continue to do it, and I recommend it to anybody. And the hardest part isn't finding time to read or even getting through those hard books. You know what the hard part is? Finding the courage to start making annotations in the margins of books. We don't write in books! And if it's a library book, you probably shouldn't. But if it's your book, you should be underlining and writing out questions and observations. Because someday, you won't be here. But your kids or your grandkids are going to pick up that book and they're going to be able to read it and it will be like they're sitting there reading it with you if they can see your questions, your observations, your insights that came as you were reading it. Very, very powerful stuff. Annie Holmquist says, Committed, stable families are the cornerstone of a thriving society. But these only come about when we first value marriage and reject the, 20, the trendy hookup and divorce culture. This marriage foundation is built upon when spouses make little, daily, sometimes even monotonous sacrifices for each other. These include praying together, expressing daily gratitude for one another, spending time with one another, and eliminating relationship killers such as pornography. Finally, she says, we can foster better friendships and communities by finding a good local church, attending faithfully, and supporting and encouraging the other congregants around us. We can give a friendly wave and smile to our neighbors, listen to their troubles, or lend a helping hand when shoveling with snow or other chores that come with home maintenance. Even calling on them for help in our own need can be a way to build better communities, for as Barry wrote, there's a need to need one another. Now, Annie Holmquist asks, will building better minds, marriages, and communities really improve our government and make it less of a thorn in the flesh of the American public? She says, nothing is a guarantee, of course, but it's quite possible when these foundational aspects of a good society are in place, everything else tends to fall in line. So if we're unhappy with the way government is working right now, why not get started cleaning it up right now by working to better the few basic things in our own power? I think she's channeling a little bit of Jordan Peterson there, but I like the way Annie says it better. (laughs) No offense, Jordan, I think you do a great job, but... Annie Holmquist is is knocking it out of the park here. You want better government? It starts with better people. People who are self-governing, people who have and use their conscience to keep them on a true course. And as much as we may see that need in others around us, man, I wish that person would straighten up and fly right. Really, the only person that you and I have the power to change is ourselves. But if we do it, even if it's just a handful of people that are doing it, it does improve society to the degree that there are people willing to make that change. And, and I've mentioned this before, but I, I can't overstate the importance of example. It shows other people around you that it can be done. And, and more importantly than requiring them to jump on board, come on, march with me and become a better person. When they see someone who is truly living a life of personal greatness. It inspires them to consider doing it for themselves. And if you can inspire people, you'd be amazed at the things that can be accomplished. When you require them to do it, yeah, they'll do it maybe grudgingly, but if you inspire them, they will do it with every bit of their heart. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got a few other things here I wanted to share in this final segment. Just a couple articles I'm going to mention in passing. I know some people will consider this tinfoil hat conspiracy time, but uh, man, I really love Brandon Smith's uh, writings. And he's got a great article about the digitization of humanity, which shows why the globalist agenda is evil. I know, you know, put your tinfoil hat on tighter. It would sound like a tinfoil hat conspiracy, what you're hearing from the, uh, you know, from, from people from the World Economic Forum. Well, it would sound like a conspiracy if it wasn't coming from the mouths of the World Economic Forum members themselves. They're very open about what they are trying to accomplish. And I guess, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's just that... Uh, uh, normalization bias, you know, where, well, you know, if it's that bad, they really wouldn't be talking about it. Have you considered some of the things that they've been saying? Again, Brandon Smith has a very eye-opening article on what they're talking about, how they're talking about becoming transhuman and whatnot. By the way, transhuman is not about becoming a superpower, you know, like you're not going to become some some hybrid superhero, you know, under transhumanism. You know what you're going to become? a pornography-addicted, drug-addicted drone who basically sits there glued to virtual reality or glued to a screen of some kind who owns nothing, eats bugs, and is happy because the people who really have the power have told them this is what you're supposed to be doing. I know that sounds like a very bleak way to put it, but that's what, that's what they're talking about. It's, and, and, oh, by the way, there's way too many people on the planet. We're going to have to get a whole bunch of them off the planet. Okay, that's the chilling part. Who makes the decision of, uh, you know, whose turn is it to get off the planet? And uh, they want to get how many? About, uh, oh, about 90% of the Earth's population off of here? That's not a good thing. So I've got a link to this in the show notes. I hope you'll check out Brandon Smith's article on how the digitization of humanity shows why the globalist agenda is evil. Now, here's another great article. This is from Stephen Whitney. I picked this one up off of, uh, I believe this was intellectualtakeout.org. Made me think about the old uh, bumper sticker I saw once. Hard work fascinates me. I could watch it for hours. Well, he has a thoughtful take on finding the value in hard work. And maybe maybe you were taught the value of hard work as a kid. Um, I'm not going to say that I was lazy, but uh, it was noted once upon a time, you know, Brian, you tire easily. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty accurate description. Now, thankfully, I've watched my kids grow up with a really strong work ethic. My boys especially. I mean, my girls too, but but my sons, I've watched them do dirty work, you know, pulling weeds and, and just stuff that really wasn't that much fun. But um, I'm very proud of them because of that work ethic. And industriousness is one of those key American values that has to be renewed for the benefit of our nation. I don't think hard work is ever wasted. So if you want to check out a great article on finding the value in hard work, I strongly recommend Stephen Whitney's article. You know, it's, it's a value like any other. It could be transmitted from father to son, from mother to daughter, friend to friend, teacher to student. Somewhere along the way, this transmission has been interrupted, but that doesn't need to be permanent. And his take is that those of us in whom the spirit of American industriousness is still alive have a duty to see that it lives on. In fact, he says, our country depends on it. All right, last but not least, I'm saving this one because this, this one just brought a real smile to my face. James Bovard is one of my favorite writers. 
because he can very seamlessly combine penetrating insights with razor-sharp wit. And he recently published a collection of pandemic pot shots and other epigrams. Basically, he says, outrageous government policies are often shrouded by fog banks of bureaucraties and political deceit, but a snappy sentence can sometimes puncture the veil and spur the, spur the ridicule that policymakers richly deserve. So this is a roundup of verbal harpoons that he flung at Leviathan last year. So, uh, for instance, uh, COVID crackdown calamities. Jim Bovard wrote, the easiest way to prove your moral superiority in Washington is to champion destroying everyone else's freedom. He also said at this point, COVID fraud is a redundant phrase. Here's another gem. Will citizens tolerate living in cagekeeper democracies where their votes merely designate who will place them under house arrest? (sighs) I'm not kidding. The guy knows how to turn a phrase here. How about this? Nothing in politicians' oath of office entitled them to turn the Constitution into COVID roadkill. Or COVID vaccination status has gone from being a proxy for health to being a substitute for sane health care policy. Here's another. Federal COVID policy resembled a socialist command and control economic plan in which all that mattered was how many arms received how many injections. Shutting down entire states with COVID lockdowns was the equivalent of burning witches or sacrificing virgins to appease angry viral gods. Here's another gem from last year. Biden issued the equivalent of a declaration of war on 80 million unvaccinated Americans, portraying them as public enemy number one. COVID chief fearmonger Tony Fauci is omniscient except during depositions. Fauci's had more flip-flops than a Ringling Brothers trapeze artist. Federal health agencies blundered worse than practically anyone expected during the COVID pandemic. Unfortunately, there is no approved cure for blind faith in government. Bovard also wrote, The government has no liability for the injections it mandates or the freedoms it destroys. How much longer will politicians pretend their iron fists are a magic bullet? How about this one? Many repressive COVID policies were simply political science 101, using deceit and demagoguery to seize more power. A virus with a 99.6% survival rate spawned a 100% presumption in favor of despotism. COVID fear-mongering swayed millions of Americans to view other people's freedom as the deadliest threat to their own health. Oh, that's a, that's a particularly good one. Or, faith in absolute power is unscientific, regardless of how many scientists pledge allegiance to Washington in return for federal funding. Again, these are pandemic pot shots and epigrams from Jim, uh, Jim Bovard, James Bovard. Uh, this was something he compiled for the Brownstone Institute. Let's see what he had to say about uh, think tanks and uh, fiascos at home and abroad. Uh, Washington is full of intellectuals more devoted to power than to truth. Ooh, that one rings true. A 16th century French writer derided the minions of the court. We have made great progress. We now have think tank minions. How about this? Cluelessness is perhaps the greatest constants, constant rather, in American foreign policy. And the political system buries information that undermines power grabs. And war is the biggest power grab of them all. Let's get a couple of his thoughts on secrecy and censorship. 
America is an impunity democracy in which government officials pay no price for their abuses. Or pervasive secrecy helps explain the collapse of trust in Washington. Americans today are more likely to believe in witches, ghosts, and astrology than to trust the federal government. Here's an especially appropriate one. Disinformation is often simply the lag time between the pronouncement and the debunking of government falsehoods. Federal agencies are censoring what you see online to protect America's cognitive infrastructure. The real goal of federal truth cops is to control America's minds. And the most important cognitive fix is to train Americans to never doubt Uncle Sam. And, and this, here's just some straight-up truth. Jim Bovard writes, The federal government has long been the most dangerous source of disinformation threatening Americans. Secrecy and lying are two sides of the same political coin. Under Biden, federal agencies continue creating trillions of pages of new secrets each year. Well, let's, take, let's take some time here to talk about some press pratfalls. Here we go. Nothing is more perilous to the truth than encouraging journalists to pirouette, pirouette as saviors when they grovel to the powers that be. Total illiteracy on history is a job requirement for pundits nowadays. Or the media often chooses to trumpet official lies instead of exposing them. Inside the Beltway, being a lapdog is easier and more profitable than being an attack dog. Journalists are not fit to serve as grand inquisitors who spoon-feed their beliefs to docile readers and viewers. As long as the media continues ignoring how federal agencies trample our constitutional rights, Americans will live happily ever after. Oh man, he's got so many more here. Uh, Contempt of Congress, extremists, terrorists, entrapment. Here we go. Hate crimes are profitable for politicians. So they continually expand the definition. When will Team Biden formally designate distrusting the government as a pre-hate crime? Okay, the complete list is there on the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, this is uh, Jim Bovard writing for brownstone.org, pandemic pot shops and epigrams. (laughs) If you need to put a smile on your face, I'm telling you, he's got some zingers that should do just the trick. This is The Brian Hyde Show.